Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg is Dr. Lorato Dekobe-Kalani, who is a psychiatrist that obtained her medical degree from the Medical University of Southern Africa, Madunsa, and is in private practice. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Amalia. To begin with, mental health has been a dominant topic over the last 18 months I mean, the world was literally turned upside down in the wake of the COVID-19 epidemic. Given that the 10th of October is World Mental Health Day, we think it's a fitting topic to be talking about, uh, focusing on mental health. And this year's theme is mental health care for all. Let's make it a reality. Can you please tell us what is your take on this theme? I I absolutely love the theme because we are living in such an unequal world that as an African child, you don't have all the opportunities that a child in America may have or a child in the UK may have. So it is very important that we try and, 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 and make it a reality, the fact that mental health can be accessible to all and should be. And thinking about the topic of mental health and and broadly speaking, how would you say that it applies to women? And as you'd made distinctions between the effects of people living in America versus the UK, how does that impact us on the African continent? You know, the topic of of, of women in Africa for, for the longest time and and still now, women in, in Africa are not visibly seen as men are. Um, Perhaps we are seen, but we're a bit blurred. So when coming to mental health, it is very important that we focus on the girl child, we focus on the women, because we are the the nurturers, we are the the people who have to to train and, and groom men to be good men. So it is very important that we take care of the mental health of women in general. And listening to what you've just described there, women have to keep it all together because not only are they looking after themselves in this world, but as you said, it's taking care of the family, it's nurturing, it's keeping track of kids' schedules and making sure that everything works together. Very true. Um, Yeah, as women, we are all-rounders. We multitask, we become teachers, we are nannies, we clean, we become doctors, we become nurses. So being a woman means you are everything. On that note about doctors and nurses, let's hone in for a moment on your field, which is psychiatry. Generally, it focuses on the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of of mental or emotional, as well as behavioral disorders. When I think of psychiatry, two aspects come to mind are conditions of depression, as well as anxiety. Can you share some insight into the types of conditions that you treat? Mm. So... 
like you say, um, the commonest would be the depressive symptoms or the depressive disorders and the anxiety disorders. But there's a whole plethora of, of disorders that we treat. We, we like to divide them into the broad uh, description of them. So when we talk of, of mood disorders and the mood disorders will be the major depressive disorders, there will be bipolar disorder, there will be seasonal affective disorder, there will be postpartum um, depression. Then we come to the umbrella of anxiety disorders, and there we will find things like social anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorders, um, specific phobias, post-traumatic stress disorder. Then we come to the umbrella of psychotic disorders. There we find conditions like schizophrenia. We find substance-induced psychotic disorders. We find delusional disorders. Then what's beautiful about psychiatry is that there's no black and there's no white. We've got many shades of gray. So in between mood and the psychotic disorders, we then get, for example, we can have bipolar disorder that can have some psychotic symptoms to it. We can have a major depressive disorder with some psychotic symptoms to it. We sometimes find people who have primarily anxiety disorders, but then they can have a little bit of spice of some psychosis in there. So that's what really makes psychiatry so interesting. You know, no two patients are ever the same. It's an amazing spectrum and there is no cookie cutter or, or box approach, like you say, in this broad view of, of different nuances. I want to ask you a question regarding social anxiety. And I say that because of the way that our world has shifted in this COVID experience where we became so much more secluded. And I'm curious to know, you know what kind of impact you've seen uh, COVID have on, on social behaviors? Wow. You know, when the announcement of, of the pandemic came, I think everybody's anxiety meter went up, whether you were already living with a psychiatric condition or whether you, you weren't having a psychiatric condition. So that's the first thing. All of our anxieties went up. It became worse for those that were already having a mood disorder, psychotic disorder, and an anxiety disorder. Being locked down or locked in your house, having your freedom taken away from you is exceptionally uncomfortable. Fearing that if I leave my house, I don't know what I may come back with. Maybe it might not affect me, but what if it in, I infect my elderly mom or my elderly dad or my husband or my children? So it, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. Where I mean, with me as a frontline worker, we still had to go out, go to the hospitals and see people, visit people in COVID wards. Coming back, you have that anxiety of, what if I'm now going to bring this deadly virus into my house? So yes, anxiety levels of everyone went up. And then as we started seeing the deaths happening, the depressive symptoms also were on the rise. You lose a loved one, you can't attend. One, maybe it's in an outside province 
or two, the numbers of people that could attend funerals were very limited. So it was limited to only 50 people. So you, you, you've lost your uncle whom you had a beautiful relationship with, but because of those restrictions, you couldn't go and say goodbye to them. So it really does affect one's mood. So in terms of COVID-19, our um, anxieties have really gone up. Talking now about the, the, the social anxiety, I, uh, I was saying earlier on that going out to eat has now become so difficult. Going out to, to the gym or going to your grocery store. We've become so afraid of people because when you look at a person, now you're just seeing all these COVID viruses floating around and we don't want to get near people we don't want to socialize with more than one or two people so people's anxiety disorders or social anxieties have also increased as you said putting your life on the line having to go out as frontline workers and being directly exposed to COVID-19 and with illnesses, diseases such as this, it's, you can't see the disease, um, but it's, it, it's so easy to um, con contract the disease. Too easy. <laughs> it's, it, it's too easy. I remember when I contracted COVID-19, it was the last two days in June, there was an outbreak at the hospital that I used to work at. And on the, on the 2nd of July, eight of my patients who had come into the hospital and had tested negative, two weeks later tested positive. So now here I'm in a situation where I need to do this mass counseling to eight patients who were negative two weeks ago and are now having to go home testing positive. I tested with them on the same day. My results came back negative. But lo and behold, three days later, I got exceptionally sick. Two days later, again, I went and I tested and I was positive. So just to, to see the reality of that, my children had made a, a, a sign on my door saying, Coronaval, uh, do not enter. <laughs> and I think it just gave COVID a face and it just became so real that this thing, as much as we can't see it, it's there. I can only imagine it must have been a terrifying experience. And as you said, it's putting a face to COVID and bring through such a reality check. Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> growing up, I was always known as, as brave face. I, I feared nothing, you know. I laughed in the face of danger, <laughs> you know. But I tell you, testing positive for COVID-19 humbles you. It humbles you because it doesn't matter what vehicle you drive. It doesn't matter what your home address is. When you are struggling to breathe, you are humbled. When you are struggling to hold up a toothbrush long enough to do those circular motions and brush your teeth, you are humbled. Well, we're glad that you made it through to the other side and are, are back to normal. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Today, we're talking to Dr. Lerato Decobe Kalani about mental health under the 2021 theme of mental health care for all. Let's make it a reality. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Lerato, we talked about the impact of, of COVID-19 and you've shared some of your personal experience. In terms of mental health elements for women, are there any conditions that women are perhaps more predisposed to and, and sensitive to? So women are, I would say, more sensitive to, to the depressive conditions and anxiety conditions. Are these conditions more prevalent? I, I don't believe so, and I'll tell you why. As women, you know, growing up as little girls, we are encouraged to express our emotions. We are encouraged to feel. Um, if I come, a baby girl comes into the house crying that their friend next door took their bicycle, mom, dad are very willing to comfort and hug their little girl and tell them it's going to be okay, walk out with them and assist them in, in resolving the problem. Boys, on the other hand, come in and in, in the society that we live in, the re response is normally, no man, you can't get, you know, allow your peers to make you cry. Go, go, go fight your own battles, go sort yourself out. So little boys' emotions are sort of clamped down. So they grow up to become men and they are not as expressive of what they feel as women are. And not that they don't feel, but perhaps they don't have the vocabulary. They don't know how to describe this that they are feeling. So they don't seek help as openly or as freely as women would go out and seek help. So the diagnosis of some of these conditions, the anxieties and the depressive conditions, more diagnoses are made in women more than men. I think only because women present themselves more than men would present themselves. Then we come to conditions that are, um, you know, attached to the reproductive um, cycle of a woman. Things like PMS, premenstrual stress. We know that with um, our, our womanly cycle, our hormones are, go up and down. They, they, they fluctuate and our moods respond to the fluctuations in the hormones. So women will, will, will have PMS as opposed to, to men. Then when coming to childbearing, you know, with pregnancies, it's another gift that God has given us as women that we are able to be incubators for the creator's greatest creation, man. And when we are hosting or carrying our unborn child inside of us, our bodies undergo change, um, our hormones undergo change, and that has an influence on the neurotransmitters in the brain, the neurotransmitters that are responsible for feeling happy, feeling sad, feeling anxious, feeling calm. So those neurotransmitters also get disturbed by the changes in, in, in pregnancy hormones. After baby is born, the body for about six to 12 weeks is trying to get back to its pre-pregnancy state. And that trying to recalibrate can then trigger what we call a postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis. 
So we can blame the hormones for everything. Yes, we can blame the hormones. And now we can blame COVID too. (laughs) People may be familiar with depression, but possibly not so familiar with postpartum depression. Could you just expand on, on that aspect a little bit more? The name is quite self-explanatory. Postpartum speaks to the, the, the time of onset of the depression. So for one to be diagnosed with a depressive episode, a major depressive episode, there must be for a period of more than two weeks, sustained low mood all day, almost every day, coupled with changes in behavior like avoiding social interactions, um, coupled with cognitive changes where one starts having negative thoughts, feelings of low self-worth, feelings that life may not be worth living, decreased energy, um, a loss of interest in things that used to be pleasurable in the past, a disturbance in one's sleep, either sleeping too much or sleeping too little, changes in appetite, either overeating or undereating. So that by definition would be a major depressive episode. So when does this major depressive episode happen? If it happens within the first six months after having had a baby, then we say it's postpartum in onset. So in a nutshell, that is what postpartum depression is. Thanks for explaining some of the symptoms of postpartum depression and also the signs of major depression. We've spoken about symptoms. We've spoken about conditions. What types of treatments are available? Our treatment approach, and and I'm going to say our because that's what we were taught by our grandfathers and grandmothers in in psychiatry. It's a biopsychosocial approach. So biologically, that's where the medication comes in. But before we prescribe medication, um, fortunately, because we are medical doctors, we are able to do a physical examination and be able to rule out all other medical conditions that could mimic depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms or any other psychiatric symptoms. So once we've excluded all other medical conditions, then we can prescribe the appropriate medication. And then if it's um, a depression, then we treat with antidepressants. If there's symptoms of anxiety, we give medication for anxiety. If there's psychosis, then we treat psychosis. For things like bipolar disorder, we use mood stabilizers to try and stabilize the mood. Conditions like schizophrenia, we use antipsychotics. The psychological part of the treatment, as a psychiatrist, I am trained in giving psychotherapy or talk therapy, put simply. Or you can work together with a clinical or a counseling psychologist who can then form part of your team and then you can give the psychological part of the treatment. And what we do in in psychotherapy is we try and restructure one's pattern of thinking. Often our anxieties are brought on by our own misperceptions or our own negative way of thinking. So we try and restructure that. Then the social part of the treatment is where we have identified a stressor or a social trigger 
for the anxiety symptoms or for the depressive symptoms or for the self-destructive um, self behavior of, of substance abuse. So if we need to then involve the family, if we need to involve people that are closest to the afflicted person, if we need to talk to managers at work, um, to, to apply for accommodation of sort, if we need to talk to teachers to assist if it's school-going children, um, that's the social part of it. I then added a fourth component in my practice, spiritual. Because as human beings, yes, we are physical, but we, we are spiritual beings as well. And a lot of people find comfort and get very good counsel from their spiritual leaders, their faith leaders, their traditional leaders. So I like to also bring in that aspect just to be able to treat a person holistically. So in your um, context of treatment, you've got the four-part component of the, the bio, the psycho, the social, uh, the, the social, and the spiritual. As you were talking, it dawned on me that one, mental health has been a taboo topic for the longest period. Second, that an individual has to understand and, and be aware of themselves uh, because they are the people that are then going to reach out for, for help. And I was thinking about this again in the context of urban versus rural conditions and, and environments because obviously within a, an urban setting, people have got greater access to practitioners such as yourself. But for women in a rural context, I'm sure they would experience elements of, of neglect on their um, mental health status. In your view, in terms of information and accessibility, how do you think that we can reach more women who are, are suffering from mental health? We need to, to start collaborating more with our traditional stroke, spiritual stroke, faith healers that are in those super rural areas. We need to come to a point where as a Western trained doctor, I'm able to speak to, to a faith healer who is sitting somewhere in the middle of of other, where maybe there is no psychiatrist and, and be able to share information, learn from them, they learn from me. So when a patient goes to, to, to their practice and is complaining of symptoms that as a faith healer, they may feel that it's beyond their scope, no way to direct such a patient. But if it's a patient that comes in with milder symptoms, maybe a depressive episode or anxieties, anxieties brought on by my husband is working in the urban areas, you know, there's been um, a mind blast and I'm worried about his safety and I'm feeling anxious. A faith healer, your pastor, your, you, um, somebody that you respect who is trained in that way can then give you counsel. And there you might not necessarily need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. The same way that with me sitting in the urban areas, if I come across somebody who maybe has spiritual issues, and that is something that is beyond my scope of practice, I need to be mindful enough 
to say, this one is beyond me. Please seek counsel from whomever you, you hold um, in high esteem in that aspect of your life. This mind, body, spirit, connection, collaboration or, or interrelationship is definitely a, a critical, critical part of one's well-being. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro-Soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to Dr. Lerato Decobe Kalani about mental health under the 2021 theme of mental health care for all. Let's make it a reality. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Dr. Lerato, thinking about the relationship dynamic, because when you are in, engaged in, in psychiatry and, and mental health, it, it is an intimate connection. What prompted you to specialize in psychiatry? What was the aha moment for you? I love talking and I love hearing people's business. <laughs> um, when I got into, into medicine, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor that works with children because I love children. But, you know, the first few months that I spent working in pediatrics, it was the saddest thing because it was during the time of, of, of AIDS where babies, young children were dying of AIDS and it used to just break my heart. And I remember my first visit to the psychiatric hospital where we trained, we visited Vescopi's hospital that's in Pretoria West in Gauteng. And our first visit was the maximum security ward. And everyone was like, ooh, maximum security. And we got there and I'm fairly light-skinned. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely light-skinned. And, and we walked in, we were a group of five girls. And there were these floridly psychotic men in that ward. For some reason, I think like, a moth to a flame <laughs> they were all gravitating towards me but I think they were just marveled by this super light-skinned little girl and for some reason I was so calm I don't know why I felt so calm but I felt so comfortable with them and I think for me that's when I knew I can only imagine what must have been going through well, not your head because you were in your comfort zone, but through your, your friends' heads, perhaps, of being exposed in maximum security prison and the prisoners gravitating towards you. <laughs> it, was, it was actually a maximum security mental facility. So that's where mentally ill prisoners would be kept. So it, it, was, it was quite interesting. They were petrified. I, I'm still in contact with those girls. And when I tell them that this is what I do, this is my passion, this is my life, they still are like, oh, no, let I don't know. No, we can't. <laughs> and thinking for a moment back to your medical study days, from your perspective, do you think enough is being done to make medicine an attractive career to women? 
don't think enough is being done to make it attractive. Um, at that time, my first year in medical school was eons ago, 1994. And I mean, I was fresh from high school. I was an 18 year old little girl away from home for the first time. And I walked into class and the majority of, of our classmates were actually boys, although there, there were a lot of us girls. And then when we got to the lecture halls, majority of our teachers were men. We got to the hospitals, majority of, of the doctors that were teaching us were men. And when you did find the women, they in a way had to now act like men and dress like men. And I think for me, that was the uncoolest thing ever. But what I'm seeing now, I think with more women going into, into medicine and more women embracing their femininity, more women saying, even though I'm a surgeon, I don't need to be all butch and horrible. I can still look pretty. I can still wear my makeup. I can still paint my nails because I feel like looking pretty and painting my nails. I don't need to conform to a masculine image of, of, of power or of getting respect. Um, so in that aspect, we are, and I'll, and I'll include myself as well, we are really trying to make medicine attractive. But I think when, when thinking of young girls who are still in school, when it is those career opportunity days or career presentations, my advice would be for the universities that visit the schools to have more female representation and female representation from, from all aspects have those eccentric women, have women that won't mind wearing their blue lipstick because it's not the color of the lipstick that determines what's upstairs in your brain. Do you think that going into private practice has been a, a vehicle for you to be able to be you, to express you and being able to be feminine, being able to um, be comfortable in your own skin and not have to try and mimic somebody else? So being authentic. Most definitely, um, Doc, because... I'm okay. If, okay. I'm going to lie now and I'm going to say I'm my own boss, but I'm not my own boss because my patients are my bosses, but being my own boss, I'm running my own private practice. So I can decorate my space to suit me, to represent my personality. I can dress whichever way that I feel represents my personality. I don't have a manager breathing down my neck saying pink, blue, green, and orange nails are not appropriate for a psychiatrist. I determine what is appropriate for me. And for as long as I feel comfortable in what I am wearing and in how I look, and I exude that when I speak to my patients, I don't feel awkward, I don't look awkward, then I'm the best in my field. That sums it up perfectly. Being your own boss, it takes guts. One of the challenges that, that we often find is how we overcome ourselves and seeking forward to understand perhaps what factors of success 
have contributed to you and, and your achievements. So could you share with us a few elements that, that you feel have contributed to your success? Wow. Sure. I think the, the support, the faith that my parents had in me, my late dad, so I've lost both my parents by now. Um, I lost my dad when I was in my final year in medical school in 1999. But he was the first person to call me Dr. Digobe. And he started me started calling me Dr. Digobe when I was five. For my fifth birthday, my mom and dad bought me a doctor's trolley because apparently from age four, that's when I started telling them that I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to sort their ailments out. So having been called Dr. Nikobe from age five, I started feeling it. I started being it. I, I, I was Dr. Nikobe. And the teachers that I had in school, especially my biology teacher, Dr. Peltz, she had so much faith in me that I believed that I was Dr. Nikobe. And, and you know, being given the opportunities that I got, I was exceptionally blessed and fortunate that my parents sacrificed the way they did to take me to the schools that they took me to. I was taken to Catholic schools and the nuns and the brothers that that taught us, they were teachers, they were not educators. They were teaching us, they were nurturing us. They really cared about what your dreams were. I was involved in, in, in first aid and I was allowed to participate in that. I was allowed to, to give counsel to people for some reason. I think in my head, I was already a psychiatrist maybe, but I was allowed to just be myself. So I think it's, it's, that's the foundation of where my success comes from. But then when I got into the field and I got to medical school, we had one professor, um, Professor E.T. Mokokong, he was the school principal. And in 1994, it was at the transition of our government where we had our first democratic elections. He was so passionate about giving the black child an opportunity. And when other universities, historically white universities did not feel or believe that I was good enough to be accepted into the medical class, Professor Mokokong felt and believed that I was good enough together with my other classmates. And as we were going through our training, we came across other teachers. We came across female teachers who were absolutely outstanding one that comes to mind is, is Professor Mazzella. She was our, our lecturer in, in obstetrics and gynecology. She was such a mother. She is still such a mother, so nurturing and believing in you as, as a girl child, telling you, girl, you can do it. Never give up. And I've carried that with me. And then being given the opportunity when I then qualified as a psychiatrist by my then head of department, Professor Ruiz, to go and head up a clinical unit, fresh from my qualification. And I remember he said to me, Lerato, if you want to, to succeed in that world that is filled with men, you better develop balls of steel, my girl. And you know what? I got those balls of steel. Of course, I bedazzled them with some diamonds to make them look pretty. But I, I kicked that. I did that. And when the private bug hit me and 
I decided to go into private practice. The fact that patients embraced me as a woman and as a female psychiatrist. And, and for me, that is my greatest success. Thank you for sharing that story with us and hearing the, the empathy in you as a person and looking at this aspect of self-belief, but also nurturing and having the right champions in your corner to groom and support you so that you can fulfill your dreams. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, it, it's it's been a journey. It's It's been a journey and having children of my own now as well, you know, being able to, to watch them growing up from being little girls to being young, beautiful women, being little boys to being handsome young men. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And I've got patients who have grown up in front of my eyes. I have a, 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 young, a young man who is doing his final year in medicine. I first saw him as a 10-year-old naughty boy who was just about to be expelled from school, a boy who had zero self-esteem, a boy who believed he was dumb. And for me to be able to remind him that he is so clever and to remind him that he can be whatever he, he wants to be and to actually see it happening. I've got young girls that I've treated since they were little girls. Now they are in, in corporate and they send me pictures of their offices and they show me what they look like when they are rocking their corporate suits. I'm like, yes, girl, you shine. So for me, those are my the successes. I think I'm now at that age where I'm loving seeing my work growing up from being a little girl to being a full-fledged woman. The work that you do and the relationships that you have with your patients are, are lifelong. And hearing these wonderful stories of how you've helped people and how you've contributed to what they've become is, is so inspirational. As we close out our conversation today, can you please share a few more words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the continent who are listening to us? Wow. Um, you, baby girl, don't ever doubt yourself. Don't ever believe the lies that the world will tell you that you are not good enough. You are good enough and more. Don't ever believe anyone that tells you that you are not beautiful. You are so gorgeous. I'm very spiritual and, and I believe in God, our creator. And I'm sorry if I will be offending anybody when I say this, but when God created man, when God created us, he created us in his image. And when you look at your reflection in the mirror, you are looking into God's face. How dare you say that God's face is ugly? God never makes mistakes. So you are beautiful, you are gifted, and you can be whatever and whomever you wish to be. Thank you for that wonderful, motivating message. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I wish we had more time. There is so much more that I would have loved to have spoken about. Thank you so much for, for hosting me. It was such a, a wonderful experience. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Lerato Dekobe Kalani about mental health under the 2021 theme of mental health care 
for all. Let's make it a reality.